If you have a Bible, go to the first book, Genesis, Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16. We're in chapter 16 this week. Next week we will be in chapter 17, which makes sense. Uh, And then actually we'll be off for two weeks uh, from the study of of Abram, uh, who will become Abraham very soon. Uh, Trevor will be preaching for us, so I'm looking forward to that. He'll be preaching for two weeks. I'm looking forward to Trevor preaching. I'm also looking forward to uh, going on vacation. Our family is going to be, will be, will not be here for one Sunday, um, but we're heading on vacation. And so I'm looking forward to that. It's less than two weeks. So we're kind of in that waiting and anticipation phase where you're just saying, oh man, there's not that many days left. It's, it's time to, to take a break. Sometimes, uh, when you're waiting, it's, it's hard to be patient. You know, you just want things to happen right now. I'd like to leave this afternoon. That would be, It'd be nice. Just go to the beach for a little bit. Uh, I think waiting and patience, that's been a part of this study, hasn't it? We've been thinking about Abram and Sarai and their lives and, and how faith, a big part of faith is patience and, and waiting. Let's remember where we've come from. Let's think about what we've learned about, about Abram. We started back in chapter 12. We are introduced to, to this man, Abram, when he's about 75 years old. And at 75 years old, God calls him to leave his homeland, packs up everything that he has, and he heads south to go to a land that the Lord said he would show him. I'll show you the land that I'm going to give you. God says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make your descendants great, and I'm going to bless you greatly. And so Abram goes out in faith and in worship. And suddenly, in the midst of the land, famine hits. And when famine hits, he kind of goes back to his old ways. He doesn't trust God in the midst of that when the famine hits. And he goes to Egypt, lies to Pharaoh, and his plan backfires. And suddenly he's in, Pharaoh, he's in Egypt. Pharaoh has his wife, and the, the entire covenant, the promises of God, are, are threatened. God graciously delivers him out of Egypt. He gets back into Canaan, returns to worshiping the Lord. You remember that conflict with, with Lot and Abram, and, and Abram shows that he's going to be faithful. He has faith that God will, will deal well with him, and so he trusts God in the midst of that conflict, and faith wins that victory. Uh, then we saw where these these armies from the north, they capture Lot and take him up to the north, and, and faith again wins the victory as, as Abram goes and defeats these armies, and then he he leaves, and, and the king of Sodom and the king of Salem come, and he chooses to, to trust God in the midst of that. And then last week, chapter 15, this point that that God appears to Abram again, And God promises, again, the promises that he's made. He says, Abram, you're going to have a son. And Abram, I'm going to give you this land. And Abram responds and says, how, God? I just don't know. I'm not sure if I can trust in this situation. And God is kind, and, and he helps Abram to trust him. I think that was the big question. God, can I trust you? That's a question that comes in our hearts too. God, can I trust you? And the answer of Genesis 15, the answer of all of Scripture, the answer of Jesus' death and resurrection is yes. Yes, we can trust God completely, not just with our lives, but with our eternal souls. We can entrust them to God. We can trust Him with our families, with our possessions. We can trust Him with all that we are and all that we have because He has said He will do it. He has sworn by His word. And he has sworn by himself, and he will never go back on that. And he's going to do it 
without any help from us. What do we give to God? All we, all we come to God with is with faith, believing that he will do it. He doesn't ask us to do anything, but instead asks us to believe and then credits us with righteousness. Now, what's so amazing about chapter 15 is that it's followed by chapter 16. It's amazing that God can be crystal clear about his faithfulness, about his trustworthiness, about how he is going to accomplish his purposes, and that Abram can be so filled with faith in that moment, and then in the next moment, everything just falls apart completely. Have you ever packed up a box, maybe with books or or clothes or, or something else, um, and you get it all organized, everything's beautifully cleaned up and put in this box, and you pick it up and the bottom falls out, and just everything goes everywhere. Maybe you can imagine, none of us have ever done this, but if you can imagine like a box of marbles, you just fill it and they're all in there and you pick it up, and suddenly the bottom falls out, and they just go everywhere. I feel like that's what happens in chapter 16. Everything is so nice and ordered in chapter 15, and all of a sudden the, Abram picks up the box, and everything just scatters. The bottom falls out. Let's read this story and see what happens. Genesis chapter 16, we'll read the full chapter, beginning in verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Well, if chapter 15 is emphasizing the trustworthiness of God, that we can trust him, then chapter 16 is a reminder of why it was so 
hard for Sarai and Abram to trust God with the promises. In case we'd forgotten, verse 1 is very clear. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Sarai was barren. I want you to put some flesh and bones on Sarai. She's just kind of a name here, right? Um, think about this. For over 10 years, she's faced the weight of of this promise. It's been hanging around her neck. This is the covenant. The covenant, in order for the covenant to come true, she has to have a son. But Sarai, after 10 years, could not produce a child. How could she not feel like, in some ways, all of this was was her fault? You wonder what was going on in her head, whether she was questioning her own faith. Is this is this my problem? Maybe she thought there was sin in her life that was keeping her from having children. I mean, how many tears had Sarah cried? How many times had her expectations been raised where she said, I think, and then no, she was not pregnant. I think after 10 years that she probably held on to some hope that she might have a child, but she never really expected it. I don't know what year that may have happened, but she probably just didn't really think it was going to happen. What, whatever she thought, whatever whatever she felt, we know one thing for sure, that she understood that her barrenness, her, her lack of children, was God's doing. She says this to Abram. She says that God has prevented me from having children. That's in verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And she's right. God is sovereign. God is in control of all things. God uh, opens and closes wombs. God puts kings into power and he brings them down from power. He gives life and he takes it away. God is in control. The, the question is, how did Sarah say this? Was it was it with bitterness? Was, was she angry at God? God has prevented me from having children. It's hard to tell. But whether she was bitter or not, the answer to her problem is in this understanding. If if God is the one who has closed her womb, then God is the one who can open her womb. If God is the source of the problem, then God is also the source of the solution. And so Sarai needs to turn to God. But she doesn't. Instead, she schemes, she calculates, she thinks of all the secondary options, other ways that she can have a child. She takes matters into her own hands. As I've thought about this passage, the picture that keeps coming into my mind is of kind of a, a locked door where you have some keys, and the keys, they fit into the lock, but they just they just won't turn. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're just cranking on a lock, maybe a deadbolt, and it will not turn. And you feel like this has got to be the right key, and you keep turning and turning. Have you ever broken off a key in a lock? Man, that is a miserable experience. And you just snap it off. And and in your attempt to open the door, using the key that you think is going to work, you actually make matters worse. You've taken a problem and you've made more of a mess than you started with. And I feel like that's what Sarai is doing. She's taking all the keys that she has and she's cranking them in this door, trying to make it turn. And she tells Abram, this is her latest plot that she comes up with, at least the one that we know. She tells Abram to take her servant as a wife and to have children through her. She doesn't even use her name. She just says, take my servant. We know from verse 1 that she's a female Egyptian servant whose name is Hagar. Hagar. She's an Egyptian, probably obtained while 
Abram was in Egypt. The ghost of that disobedience there in Egypt continued to haunt Abram, it would seem. This solution sounds strange, doesn't it? Sarai says, here's, our, here's my servant. Take her and have a child through her. Make her your wife. That's not a solution that we would usually come up with in our day and age, is it? But this was, it was common in the day. It was according to the customs of the land. Um, Abram and Sarai owned Hagar. And so if she had a child, that child would be theirs. I wonder who suggested it first. Remember, Abram's there in Hebron with Mamre, his, his friend. I wonder if Mamre said, hey, you know, a lot of people in our day, this is what they do. They have slaves and they have children through them if they can't have their own. Or maybe it was Mamre's wife and Sarai were having coffee one morning discussing the problem. And, and they looked at all the evidence. I mean, all the evidence is there. Uh, it's been 10 years. They've tried for 10 years, and Sarah has not had a child. And they both say, you know, Sarai, you're not getting any younger. What are we going to do? And then they say, well, what about, what about Hagar? Isn't that an option? Could we have a child that way? So Sarai comes to Abram and proposes this solution, and they think about this together. Could this, could this be the plan? Is this how Abram is going to have offspring? I mean, God said, Abram, you will have offspring. Did he say it had to be through Sarai? So maybe this is how the promise is going to be fulfilled. And the text says, you see it there, it says at the end of verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Was this a smart move? Was this what Abram should have done? Again, with Old Testament narrative, we don't. there's no moral judgment given, is there? The text doesn't say this was a bad move for Abram. So we have to try to discern what, what's going on here. Uh, we've acknowledged that this is a custom in the land. It comes from the voice of Sarai, um, Abram's closest companion. Is this a good move? I think we know it's not because the results are terrible. This decision just creates a whole mess. Again, the bottom falls out. But I think even more in particular from this text, look at, look at verse 3 and watch the emphasis. What this verse does is it emphasizes the proper relationships and shows how Abram and Sarai just take everything and mix it up completely. Verse 3 says, So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Sarai was Abram's wife. Hagar was not Abram's wife. Hagar was Sarai's handmaid. She was not Abram's wife. And Abram was Sarai's husband. She was not Hagar's husband. But they go through with it, and they mix up all these relationships completely. And then Hagar conceives. She becomes pregnant. Can you imagine what a twist of the knife that would be for Sarai? She's waited for 10 years to have a child, and then it seems like overnight, suddenly, Hagar is pregnant. Hagar doesn't help the situation very much. In this role reversal, she fills up with pride. She begins to look down and on and despise Sarai. Suddenly, there's conflict between Sarai and Abram, and Sarai comes and says, Abram, this is your fault. It's... He says that, that this, you are not dealing with this correctly. What probably seems to happen is that, that Hagar becomes pregnant and, and Abram is so happy that he doesn't deal with the situation like he probably should. And so he says, Sarai says, this is your fault. 
And Abram says, hey, this isn't my responsibility, sir. She's your handmaid. Do whatever you want with her. He just kind of passively lets her, says, you deal with the situation. And so Sarai then treats Hagar, treats Hagar so bad that she flees and runs to the, to the hills. And with her goes this son, this child that they thought might be the fulfillment of the promise. What a mess, right? I mean, this is this is a mess. We've gone from this place in chapter 15 of beautifully ordered, ordered faith, and all of a sudden we've lifted this box of marbles, the bottom falls out, and everything goes everywhere. What's going to happen now? And how in the world did this happen? Let's think about how this happened. I just want to give you three little things. This is kind of almost a side note to the passage, but this is how it happened. First, there was impatience. We, we've talked a lot about impatience, haven't we? Impatience. Again, we see, though, that God's timing is is not ours. And when we try to force things into our timetable, we say it needs to happen now, then the results can be disastrous. Ten years is a long time. And Sarah said, it's got to happen now. But that wasn't God's timetable. The call to be faithful is often the call to be patient. The call to be faithful is often the call to be patient, to patiently trust that while we have no idea what God is doing, we know that he is doing something. So impatience causes this problem. I think the other one is another one is passivity. How passive Abram is. This is Sarai's idea, according to the text, and we need to to hold her responsible to a certain extent. But we also need to look at how passive Abram is and realize that his lack of faith, his indifference towards the violence that this was going to cause to relationships, and cause to his his marriage was was a problem. It says here that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. It takes us back maybe to Genesis 3, where, where Eve takes of the fruit and gives it to Adam. And Adam, in a sense, listens to his wife. Now, here's the point that I'm not making. The point is not, men, don't ever listen to your wives, okay? That is, that is not the point of the passage. But rather, it's this, and I, I believe this is here. Abram is responsible. Just as as Adam is held responsible, Eve ate the fruit, but Adam is held responsible. I believe Abram is responsible for here, here to protect his marriage. When Sarai comes and offers this solution, he should say, that's a bad idea. I don't care what everyone else is doing. I don't care what you're telling me to do. This is bad because you're my wife. Hagar is not my wife. We need to protect this relationship. We need to trust God. But Abram, he just kind of sits back and he says, well, all right, let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. He's just totally passive in this situation. And so I think husbands, and I just was struck by this, we have a responsibility to be vigilant, to be proactive, to keep there from being anything that comes into our marriage relationship that's going to cause tension, that's going to cause corruption, that's going to cause conflict. That is our job. We are to lovingly lead. We, when there's a suggestion from, from our wife or from someone else, we need to take it as our responsibility to guard the purity of our marriage. Because if we don't, the bottom falls out. Passivity, indecision, going with the flow, these are not options. It doesn't work. We need to be active. We need to be God-centered. We need to model self-sacrificing leadership and protect our wives, protect our relationships. I think it's specifically towards husbands here. That's the application that I see maybe just to my own heart. But we could say, too, that, that, that obedience to God can never be 
passive. We need to be seen how we are to follow. So impatience causes the problem. Passivity on Abram's part causes the problem. And then I would say another one, if I could just describe it like this, it's worldly, worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. So Sarai proposes this idea, and we've said it's a common idea. It was something that everyone else was doing. Maybe Sarai said to Abram the famous words, well, Abram, everyone else is doing it. And when I say that, the words of my mother come into my mind, which are, well, if everyone was jumping off a cliff, would you? I don't know if you guys have ever heard that one, but that's what came into my mind as I was preparing this. Brothers and sisters, just because something is seen as acceptable by everyone else, even by the people closest to us, even even maybe by our spouse, doesn't mean that it's right. doesn't mean that we should do it. We're called to follow God, not the world, not our spouse, not anyone else. We live for an audience of one. We follow God's standards alone. So what happened here? Well, I think there was impatience, there was passivity, and there was a whole bunch of worldly wisdom, and now the bottom has completely fallen out. And Hagar is gone. We see this at the end of chapter of, of verse six. Hagar has has fled. Um, judging by where she ends up, she probably traveled for about a week on foot, pregnant, through Canaan. She's traveling through the south harsh lands of Canaan, and after a week or so, she was sitting by the spring near Shur, and God found her. It says. The text says that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord. We should identify this character. He's come into the story. The angel of the Lord. Who is this? The word for angel could be translated just as a, as a messenger. At the very least, this person is a messenger from God that appears in a human form, speaking a message from God with the authority of God. Some would say that he's more than that. He's not just an angel. He's not just a messenger. But actually... He's God himself. People would say he's, the, he's, he's Jesus Christ seen before the New Testament. This is Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. He's not identified as Jesus, but as the angel of the Lord. We could say that, that because it's the angel of the Lord. He's given this title, the angel of the Lord. You can look at verse 13 when, when Hagar says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So it very well could be that this is actually... God himself, Jesus Christ, appearing to Hagar. could be that it's just a messenger, an angel as, as well. Both are viable options. Neither are heretical. <laughs> but whoever this is, the message is from God. And while Sarah, in all of her talking, saying what needs to happen with Hagar, she never mentions Hagar na Hagar's name. She always calls her my servant. My handmaiden. What's the first thing that God says to Hagar? He said, Hagar. He recognizes Hagar by name. She's not just the property of Sarai. She is a human being created in God's image. And he says, Hagar, where did you come from? And where are you going? Now, God obviously knows where she came from and where she's going, but he gives her the opportunity to speak. And Hagar reveals that she's fleeing from Sarai. She doesn't say where she's going. Probably because she didn't know where she was going. Or maybe the answer was the same. I'm fleeing from Sarai. In other words, I'm going as far away from Sarai as I can get. And then God speaks three different times. He says three different things to her through the angel of the Lord or as the angel of the Lord, however you want to interpret it. 
First, he tells Hagar to return, to return and submit. She's to be faithful in this relationship that she has with Sarai. And as much as Sarai's treatment of her was wrong, her fleeing was not the right solution. She needs to go back and correct this relationship. We're reminded of Onesimus, right, in the New Testament with, with Philemon and how Paul told this runaway slave to return. She's told to return. Then God says, you are blessed, Hagar. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. This isn't the Abrahamic covenant. This isn't the same promise that God gives to Abraham. He says the same thing. I will bless your descendants. I will make them as many as the stars on the earth, in the sky on the earth. <laughs> um, it's, it's not the same, but it's an extension of blessing because she is connected to Abram, and those that are with Abram are blessed, and so she is, she's blessed. And then finally he gives this word here in verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The final message is, God says, I hear you. Part of this pronouncement reveals that this, this promise is not a parallel to the new covenant. So Ishmael is not the fulfillment of the promise. It's very clear because he says all these things about he will be a, a wild donkey of a man, and, and the description is not of, of them being in this settled land. Um, it's not of the nations being blessed. It's more of that Ishmael will be a wanderer. He'll be a nomad of sorts. But the core of this passage is found in Ishmael's name. It, Ishmael's name and then all the, the words that follow, Hagar's response that follows. God says, when you have this son, I want you to name him Ishmael. And Ishmael means God hears. He says to, to Hagar, I want you to name him God hears because I have heard you and listened to you in your affliction. God names Hagar's son God hears. And Hagar responds by naming God by giving God a name that describes who he is and who he was specifically to her in that instance. And he says, she says, you are a God of seeing. That's the name that Hagar gives to God. And then she says, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And then she names the place. She names this well, Be'er Lahairoi. It's a question of sorts. It's this wondering statement that says that, that she can't believe that she has seen God in this place. There's this almost sense of surprise that she says, I would have never thought that I would have found God here. But here he is, listening to me and hearing me and seeing me. I mean, put yourself again in Hagar's shoes now. Think about this woman. She's been torn from her country, from Egypt. She's taken into Canaan. And then after nearly 10 years of service, to this family, she suddenly gets caught in the midst of this triangle with Abram and Sarai. She's treated as property, not as a human being. And then she becomes pregnant, which is what everyone wanted. And then everything gets worse for her. It gets so bad that, that she takes off and she runs away. I mean, how much more alone could you feel than Hagar feels at this moment? But it's when Hagar was at her lowest, when she was at the place that she least expected to find God, that God appears to her. 
and he calls her by name and he offers her a blessing and he says, I hear you, Hagar, I've listened to your voice. And her response is, Is God, God, do you see me? Hagar felt invisible. She felt alone. She was wandering in the midst of nowhere. No one was looking after her. So God shows up and says, I see you, Hagar. And Hagar says, I would have never expected to find God here. But here he is. He sees me. And at its core, this story is not about how foolish Abram and Sarai were. It's not about the mess that they've created because they're impatient and because they're passive and because they are relying on worldly wisdom. It's it, We need to learn from their mistakes. But but remember that these these stories are not about Abram. They're about, they're about God. They're about who God is. And God takes this as an opportunity to reveal himself. And the story is meant to reveal this truth, that God is a God who sees. I'm sorry. <laughs> he sees his children. He sees and he hears us. He's a God of seeing. He is a God of hearing. He saw Hagar. He saw her alone and mistreated. He saw her wandering in the wilderness. And he comes to her with a blessing. The God of the universe cares for this Egyptian slave in the middle of nowhere. She's not insignificant to him. She's not beyond God's touch. She never expected to see God, but God saw her. And God saw Sarai and Abram. They had lost sight of him, but God used Hagar to remind them that he never lost sight of them. And so she returns, and she tells this story to Abram and to Sarai. She tells them. We know that she tells them because in verse 15 it says, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram is the one who names the child Ishmael. And so Hagar comes back and says, God saw me. God found me. He was listening to me. And he told me to name this child God Hears. And that's the message that God has for Abram and Sarai. It's, I hear you. I see you. In all their waiting and all their impatience, they've, they've tried to make their own way. They've taken all the keys that they've had and broken them all off in the lock. They're trying, they're trying, they're trying. And God says, I hear you. I, I see you. I've told you that I'm going to take care of this. I've told you I don't need your help. You didn't walk through the sacrifices with me. I will do this, Abram. I will do this, Sarai. Believe me. Trust me. Sarai, I see you. I know how hard this is, but I hear you. I hear your prayers. Be patient. Wait. I, I think I'm obviously coming a bit overwhelmed with the emotion. <laughs> I think because when you think about this woman, Hagar, and then you think about Abram and Sarah, they are, they are polar opposites in so many different ways. Abram and Sarah are these, these folks that have been chosen by God, blessed in this amazing way. And Hagar is just the Egyptian servant that got caught up with them in the midst of Abram's disobedience. But God shows up to Hagar. And he says, I see you. I hear you. I, 
I care about your situation. And she comes back. How ironic that Hagar comes back with the message for Abram and Sarah and says, I see you and I hear you. And the message for us is the exact same, that God sees you. God hears you. If you if you are like Hagar and you are in the midst of a place where it's the last place you would ever expect to see God, you would be totally surprised if God showed up at that moment. Then you then know that, that God sees you. You're distressed. You, you feel like you're lost. You're alone. You're away from everything that you know and believe and understand. The message that God gives us in this beautiful story is, I see you. Now, that can be a daunting thing to say that God sees you, but here it's to be a comfort, to say God sees you, he cares for you, his heart goes out to you, he hears the cries of your heart. Not just Hagar, but think about Sarai. Again, we've put flesh on those bones. Think about 10 years of waiting, and God comes and says, Sarai, I see it. I'm not, I'm not, I, I know that this has happened, and so, just if there's something going on, you've been dealing with it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I don't know how long. God sees it. You've been praying the same prayer over and over and over again, and it feels unanswered. The message of this text is God hears you. He sees you. He's listening. What a comfort that is. I can't apply it to every situation because I don't know every situation here. But, but whatever it is, if it's, if it's distress or if it's anguish, if you're just impatient, if you become passive and you're relying on worldly wisdom, if you are caught in sin, if you are, you just feel lost in general, whatever it is, again, and all the other things that I can't describe, know that God sees you. God hears you. Can I give one more application? I think the the other application that just popped out to me in this is if we are to be representatives of God, if we are to be like God, then I think the question is, do we see and do we hear? Because there are Hagars and Sarais and Abrams and everyone in between all around us, people that are impatient people that are running away, people that are distressed, people that are are wandering, people that are mistreated, people that are confused. There are passive husbands. There are people in broken relationships. They are in our city. They're in our neighborhoods. They're in our workplaces. And I think the question is, do we, are we willing to go as, as a messenger of God with this message to go to someone and to say to them, God sees you, God sees you hears you and it might be that their response is they they might even say something because people say things like this you were like an angel to me in the midst of when i was lost we might speak to them and they say you know i was in this spot and it was the last place that i ever expected to find god or to have a message from him and you showed up And here's the encouragement that I would give to you. If you think about that, you think about people like Hagar, and you say, if I met Hagar, I would have no idea what to say to her. You know what you say to her? God sees you. God hears you. That's what people need to hear in a moment. And, And we help them. We point people to Christ. But I think sometimes people just need to know 
people feel like no one hears them, that no one sees them, that they're invisible to the world. And we come and we say, you're not invisible to God. He sees you. He hears you. He cares for you. It's a beautiful truth, I think, that's in this text, one that we can take to heart. It closes in verses 15 and 16. Just a summary statement. Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. What a reminder for the rest of his life. God hears you, Abram. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Isn't that amazing? Don't, don't just read over that. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. At 86, Abram became a father for the first time, but not the last time. Can I give you a, a sneak peek? It's going to be another 13 years. They've waited 10 years for the son of the promise. He has Ishmael. They've got another 13 to wait before Isaac comes. But Abram's going to have another son. Abram's going to have the son that God promised. Abraham will have Isaac. And then the beautiful truth is that Isaac's going to have Jacob. And Jacob's going to have Judah. And on down through the line. And then in the midst of the silence, when people are wandering around and they don't know where to go in the darkness, when they feel like God doesn't see them anymore, when they feel like God isn't listening anymore, suddenly Jesus shows up. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the descendant of of Abram in that line, the promised seed that will crush the head of the serpent. He shows up and he lives before us as a human being, lives a perfect life, never sins. He's the perfect Abram. He doesn't do all the stupid things that Abram does. He doesn't fail in all the ways that Abram does. No, he is, he is completely faithful. He is the faithful son that we are looking for, and he lives this perfect life. And then he is murdered. He is killed. Not because he ever did anything wrong, but he's killed because we have done wrong things, because we have sinned. And so he comes and he dies, not because of what he has done wrong, but because of the sins of Abram and Sarai and Hagar and Andy and everyone else in this room. And he pays the penalty for our sins, and then he rises again to give us new life. And here's the, here's the key. Your job is not to find the key that fits and to keep cranking it. Say, how can I make this work? How can I find salvation? How can I make God happy with me? Because if you do it, you just keep breaking off the keys. They will not fit. What God wants us to do is to stand back and say, I believe, Lord. I believe that you have done everything necessary for my salvation, that you lived the perfect life that I could not live, and that you died in place of my sins. And I believe, and if we do that, then God credits us with righteousness, forgives us of, of sin, and this door that we keep trying to open up with our lame keys opens to us, and Jesus is standing on the other side. He is the one that opens the door for salvation, not us. What a beautiful truth that God sees us and hears us.